If I were to ask you to describe grace, maybe from terms you learned in Sunday school as a child or recently as an adult, what would you say? Grace, unmerited favor. I love it. Did any of you have the acrostic growing up where it was by each letter G-R-A-C-E? Does anybody remember that? God's riches at Christ's expense. That was one I learned early on. That's certainly an expression of grace. Let me give you a, a definition that um, if you look up any dictionary, theological dictionary, they, they vary. Everybody wants to nuance it and make it theirs. This one should make good sense to everyone in the room. God's unmerited favor toward humanity and especially his people realized through the covenant and fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Unmerited favor. When we think of grace, we think of God. We think of a song that's played all the time, (laughs) everywhere just about, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It's a picture of grace. We sang that here just recently. Grace. God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse from sin. Greater than all of our sin. It's a distinctive feature of the religion of the Bible. No other system of religious thought, past or present, contains emphasis on divine grace that's comparable to that of the Word of God. This morning, all of us in our Bible study groups of all ages took a look at Philemon. And for just a few moments today, I want to explore this remarkable tiny slice of the New Testament with you as a testimony of God's grace. I see God's grace on full view and display in four distinct ways. Probably more than that. You can find more than that. Email me this week. That's fine. We don't have time for all of them. I picked four that I saw clearly. Before I get to that, in case you missed the Bible study this morning, or in case it's been a minute since you've read Philemon, let me dust off a little character sketch for you with the key players. Can you guess who one of the main characters in Philemon is? I'll pause for a response. Philemon, excellent. Bible scholars, I love it. I love, love, love studying the Word of God with smart people. It's awesome. Paul writes to Philemon, and while you're finding it in your Bible, what you'll find there is Paul will comment on the love and faith that he has for Jesus and the love that he has for the saints. That's in the first handful of verses. Mark read it this morning, that he was sharing his faith, bringing about knowledge and teaching about the Spirit. It's Christ-centered, the way that Philemon does life. He has the church gathering there, even in his home. He's spreading joy and comfort among Christians. He refreshes the saints. Let's take a pause for just a minute. That sounds like somebody I want to hang around with. How about you? Yeah? I mean, this is the kind of church person that you introduce. This is the guy that we want wearing the Grace Covenant Church t-shirt, right? And inviting people to church. This guy. We've all met the other guy, right? The guy that you hope never tells everybody that they go to your church. 
the guy that's a strife star. Now, they don't attend Grace Covenant anymore. They, they've left, and so, I'm just kidding. I have nobody in mind there. But uh, they, I'm just saying, this is the kind of church member you want. This is the kind, if we were designing, as elders, if we were to sit and write a discipled Dan or a, a discipled, insert lady's name that starts with D, Delilah, that's not a good name. Deborah, thank you, much better. Wow. Um, I read a lot of Old Testament, y'all. Discipled Deborah, um, one of the things we would come up with is probably this description, right? Something like this. This is what we want to build up the body to become. There's another character in there, and depending on the way you pronounce it, Onesimus is a common pronunciation. When I hit the little tool that's supposed to help me as a preacher in the languages, it said Onesimus. So if I'm the only nerd job in the room saying Onesimus, I'm just going to say Onesimus because that's what you all said in Sunday school, I bet. So Onesimus, or other pronunciation, is a runaway slave. He was imprisoned. He became a follower of Jesus while he was in prison with Paul. Let me make a comment very quickly and briefly because I've addressed this before. When we come to the issue of slavery in the Bible, immediately in the westernized church and certainly in the southeastern part of the United States, we, our mind goes to the incredible, heinous blight on our nation that was not only tolerated but endorsed as slavery. Where we saw people treated as less than human, fellow image bearers treated as subhuman because they weren't like a majority race. Well, that's despicable. That's evil incarnate. That's what that is. And that's the first touch in our mouth of slavery when we come to slavery mentioned in the Bible and we think, well, God's giving rules for slavery. Why didn't he just, well, in the Bible days, it was different. This was still not condoned by God, but God did provide a framework to where both the servant who had agreed to be a servant and the master who had agreed to engage in that relationship could both honor God through that. Now, if they follow the path, it would lead to freedom. That's the way God structured it. So when we're talking about a slave, put on that context there that that had been entered into an agreement. Now, sometimes people would have to be forced into slavery or servitude because they had a debt they couldn't pay. And they'd say, I'm going to have to work this off. My dad, I remember, would say sometimes if I would order something too expensive off the menu, you're going to have to work this off in the kitchen. I didn't bring that much cash this morning. A lighthearted treatment, but the principle's the same. They needed to work off a debt. Onesimus, Onesimus was this slave. He probably, we'll see later, stole something from his master and then ran away. That's likely what happened. He was not useful before, but after he's encountered Paul in prison, he becomes useful as a brother. He was discipled by Paul, who was in prison. And when I say discipled, I don't mean Paul said, join us Sunday morning at 9 a.m. We've got a class that I hope that you'll enjoy. And after you take this class so many times, you're going to be a disciple of Jesus. That's a Greek model of discipleship. Learn what I know and you will be as I am. No, Paul would have discipled him in a Hebraic model that he learned from the disciples and even from our Lord himself that said, let's walk together. Let's do life on life together. Let's open up God's word and let it transform both of us as we are doing ministry together. We're gonna learn, there's a lot to learn, but it's not just a classroom setting. 
In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 through 8, here's Paul normalizing his model of discipleship. Here's what he says. Paul writing to the church and says, We're gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you, watch this, not only the gospel, not only the thought, the truth, but our own selves. Other translations say our whole lives as well. Why? Because this was not an information transaction. This was incarnational transformation that we were after. And so Paul said, I poured my life into you. That's what discipleship is. Onesimus had been discipled by Paul. Onesimus was sent from Paul back to Philemon as a believer. That was best. Paul wanted to, to keep him. He wanted to put him on his own payroll and say, look, he's so awesome, transformed for Christ. He was useless before, but now he is useful, and he, I want him as my assistant, but that's not best. I want him to come back to you, Philemon, but I'm sending you. I'm sending part of my own body. I'm sending my heart. I'm sending my passion back to you. And then we see a distinction between Philemon and Onesimus. Onesimus had been transformed, and this is going to require Philemon to treat him differently. He's coming back, but he's not coming back like he left. He's coming back to honor Philemon. He's coming back as a brother. Just a side note here. Even though he had been saved and transformed by the Lord, his job didn't change. He still had commitments he had to honor that were a part of his old life. Can I just tell you? That when the Lord saves you, he transforms everything. Behold, all things are made new. You, you still got to honor your commitments and show up where you're supposed to show up. Final character sketch here. Let's look at Paul and Philemon related together. This shows up in the last few verses, 8 and 9. Paul says, I'm not like exerting my authority as an apostle here. I'm not saying, look, you've got to do this because I'm an apostle and, and you are not an apostle and I have authority over you and I want you to do this thing. No, that, that's not how this worked out. That's not what Paul said. He says, I want you to treat him differently because you love so well. Since I'm a co-laborer with you, treat him like you would treat me. Now, Paul had discipled Philemon. He says, treat him like you treat me. Wow. Forgive his wrongs like you would forgive mine. I'll settle his debts. And by the way, while you're thinking of what he owes you, remember what you owe me, Philemon. ruh -ro. That stung a little. That's almost mom guilt level there. I mean, that's strong stuff. He said, you're going to bless me and refresh me by how you treat him. I'm confident in you. I can't wait to hear about you exceeding my expectations. And by the way, I'm coming soon, verse 22, to check up and see how all this played out. Man, you talk about, it'd be cool if he had just sent an email, right? You've done that before. None of you have done that, right? But some people have done an email before, kind of a one and done. There's my opinion and sin, right? Deal with it. That never happens, right? David doesn't happen anywhere. None of your workplaces, that happens. But sometimes we happen, that happens. And Paul says, look, I'm not just transmitting a letter. I'm coming to check up, get my room ready. I can't wait to hear about all that God's at work doing. So Philemon was entertained for just a moment thinking, Paul will never know how I treat this guy. If I just send him an email back and say, hey, thanks for this, and uh, then just treat Onesimus like he deserves to be treated, Paul will never know. Oh, Paul's coming to check up. 
on me and see how everything goes. There's a lot to learn from a passage like this. I want to peel back the surface just a bit and get at the incredible transformative power of the grace of God that I believe is on display. Now, here's my challenge this morning. This is a short letter, so it should be a short sermon. I'll do my best, I promise. Number one, if you're taking notes this morning, this is implicit in the text, but I believe it's right staring us in the face. There is grace at work in suffering. I think before we even get to Onesimus and Philemon, we, we can't ignore who's writing the letter. Now, some of you Bible scholars are tightening up your tie and you're doing your belt like this. You're saying, Pastor Chad, the Bible was written by God. You're absolutely correct. But God used men to write down the scriptures. And so God is using Paul's life and experience in these moments to write it down. Paul penned most of his New Testament writings from prison while in chains. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Paul was in prison. There is grace at work in suffering. Even when Paul, you say, well, he was under house arrest sometime. That's not as bad. That's not like today. He was chained to somebody. His movements and interactions would have been restricted as well as his guests. He was inflicted with constant surveillance, surveillance by those around him. What do we learn from the fact that God works grace in suffering? I think you know this. I trust that you know this. Let this be a reminder deep in your spirit this morning. If you're taking notes, it shows up in the notes. I don't have this note on the screen. I'll have some scripture up in a moment, but here's your first note. God uses suffering in our lives as a means to accomplish his will. Now, some of you say, no, <laughs> I didn't check that box on the card, Pastor. No, that's not what I signed up for. But God uses suffering in our lives as a means to accomplish his will. Look with me at 1 Peter 4, 19. Let me put it on the screen for you. Look at what the Bible says. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. There's the dynamite against the prosperity theology, which is a lie, by the way, that would say that once you give your life to God, it's all uphill from there. It's all just an upward trend, and you have no more sickness and sorrow and suffering. You know, it didn't play out for any of the apostles that way. There's no prescriptive or descriptive text that it works that way. I'm not sure where they get it from, because here the Bible says, let those who suffer according to God's will, watch this, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We mentioned last week in Paul's testimony, I don't want to rehearse it all, but think back to Acts 9, 16, when Paul was speaking to Ananias to go pray for, or God was speaking to Ananias to go pray for Saul, who was becoming Paul, right? And he says, pray for him, tell him, I have shown him how much he's going to suffer for my namesake. We know that it's God's will for us to suffer at times. It's a means of accomplishing His will. So many of us in the church, though, tend to have weak theology about suffering. As soon as we are uncomfortable, we want it over. That's human nature. I get it. I'm not pro-suffering. I'm not looking for a fight. I'm not going to step out into moving traffic this Sunday morning because I need a trial in my life. Got it? <laughs> 
What I'm saying is this, though. We have weak theology about suffering. We think it's God's will to immediately get us out of suffering every time it comes, and it's not. It's clearly not based on God's word and based on saints that you know and I know that are faithful saints that have suffered well. God's grace is at work in our suffering. We can find ourselves, if we're not careful, like three of Job's four friends that God rebuked for bad theology on suffering. We know that it's God's will for us to suffer at times. We also know that, here's your second little point under suffering if you're taking notes, God uses us while we are suffering. God's grace is at work in suffering. Where's your proof for that? Well, it's a scripture I read to the Haas family, to Matt, this week on the phone. As we were talking, and we were talking about the sufficiency of God's grace for him as he's grieving the loss of a loved one. But that God's grace was bigger than just his pain. God's grace was so big that God could work through his pain to encourage others. Second Corinthians, it's on the screen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us. You could put a period there and just say, thank you, Lord. Comforts us in all of our affliction. Put a period there and say, praise God, hallelujah. His grace is sufficient. But there's not a period there. It says, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul can get wordy sometimes. Here's what he's saying. God's grace is so big, yes, it will take care of you while you are suffering, but it will also bleed out on others. And you can be useful to God when you are in the throes of the storm. When you read the New Testament, you'll notice that suffering is a regular part of the Christian life. In the midst of our own suffering, God can use us to be a comfort to others. I've seen it play out in two families, actually more than two families, this past week. The God of all comfort, the same God who endured the suffering of his own son, Jesus Christ, is present and active with us in our suffering. God's grace is at work. He comforts us, but he also does a work through us so we can still be a blessing to others. There are two seas in the Bible, both fed by the Jordan River. There's the Red Sea and the Dead Sea. One of them has life, one of them doesn't. Okay, Bible scholars, which one do you think doesn't have life between the Red Sea and the Dead Sea? Let's see if I can get a response. Awesome. Somebody said the Nile. No, you're in denial. I got preacher jokes all day long. Sorry. Why is, what's the difference? Well, the river flows through the Red Sea. There's an intake and an output in the Red Sea. The Dead Sea only takes water in. There's no output. You can survive that suffering with God's comfort, but God has designed you to do more than survive. He wants you to thrive in the midst of suffering as he works through you to comfort others. God knows you. God sees you. He's near to you while you're suffering. He knew Paul and he used Paul. I want you to consider that he was in prison for most of his letters that he wrote that were letters of encouragement to brand new Christians. The second thing God is at work at here, 
God's at work in Onesimus' salvation. God is at work in salvation. Taking notes this morning, that's point two. God's grace is at work in salvation. Now that's a big duh, right? (laughs) You get that. That's part of the salvation text. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. But at some point, Paul had shared the gospel with Onesimus. He had shared the gospel with him. He told Onesimus that there was a God in heaven that created everything, that set everything up in order and had intended for everything to work the way he had designed it to work. But man, when given choice, the first shot man had in the garden, it wasn't environmental here. This was, and the environment was perfect, literally perfect. And here we go. The first shot man has to either rebel against God's clear instruction or to obey God and deny self, man rebels for a moment of pleasure, fleeting pleasure. And we've been doing it as humanity ever since. And Paul would share with Onesimus. And that has separated us from a holy God. You see, because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the fact is that the wages of our sin is death. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God commended his love toward us so much in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And something is stirring in Onesimus, and he's responding. Eyes are fixed. Ears are pointed in. Heart is open. The Holy Spirit doing a work And then he tells him of Jesus' story where he's pointing and reminding the people of the folks who perished when the building collapsed while they were building this building outside the city. And he says, unless you repent, you're going to perish just like those. The kingdom of God is here. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. And Onesimus says, I want to do that now. He puts his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and becomes a new creature. The gospel is powerful. Why would Paul share that in prison with guards on him because he was being in prison for sharing the gospel? You know why? Here it is. He was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it was the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God in what? The gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed through faith or from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul knew Onesimus' greatest need was not to get out of prison, not for his suffering to end, but for him to come to know Jesus. God's grace is at work in our suffering, and God's grace is at work in salvation, obviously for the ones saved, but also for the ones sharing the gospel. He wasn't going to change his career station in life. He was going to be transformed by the power of God. Paul said, him I've got to proclaim. It's interesting that in Colossians, that's the other letter Paul gave Onesimus to carry back. He says, him I proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I don't want to chase this dog too far, but listen. Paul, in this culture that we live in where behavior is being normalized that shouldn't be normalized, I want to tell you something. Paul is normalizing evangelism and costly discipleship every time he has the opportunity, and he lives it out. 
Our goal is not just to get people to tick a box or make a decision. Our goal is to make disciple-making disciples together. It's awesome how this works. Onesimus is needed the very thing that Paul encouraged the Colossian Christian with. He was far from God. He was an enemy of God. He was evil by his thoughts and actions. But because of the physical death and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, he could come into a living relationship with God and by grace be saved through faith. Now he's standing before God without a single fault, holy and blameless because of Jesus Christ's finished work and because of Paul's witness. The gospel, may I remind you this morning of this powerful quote. I've said it before. The gospel came to you on the way to someone else. That's God working in us, yes, for us, hallelujah, but through us. Very quickly this morning, quick illustration just popped in my head. I don't think I've said it here, but imagine the scene where these angels are in heaven and, and Jesus has come back to heaven after presenting his blood as the sufficient sacrifice and he's ascended now and the angel's are like, wow, that's incredible, Lord. What an awesome plan of salvation you've worked out. But Lord, you did that outside the city on a hill of the skull called Golgotha. How will word get out? Are you ready for us to go announce it to all of creation like we did your birth with the shepherds? You want us to take over all the skies, over all the earth, and tell every living thing about this plan of salvation? And Jesus says, no. You remember those disciples that I were with, that I was with? And the angel goes, um, the fishermen, the tax collector and the rabbinical school dropouts, those guys? He's like, yep, those guys. Yeah, yeah, we remember them, Lord. Wow, we were concerned about them. We really hadn't got, and then Jesus says, they're going to go tell people, and then they're going to tell people, and this gospel shall be proclaimed to all of creation. And the angels goes, wow, God, you are God. You know all things, you see all things, you're above all things, but um, do you have a plan B? And Jesus says, no. The gospel came to us on the way to our neighbors and the nations, to our family and friends who need Jesus. Thank God for Paul having this truth. God's grace is clearly at work in Paul's suffering and Onesimus' salvation, number three and four, and they run very quickly, don't worry. God's grace, we've already hinted at it, but it's at work in Paul's discipling. God's grace, his unmerited favor is on display. The most familiar Great Commission text calls us to make disciples. Go, therefore, the Bible says, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Formerly useless as a runaway slave who defrauded his master, Onesimus has now been changed by the gospel of Christ. He is now useful as a beloved brother and personal aid to the imprisoned Paul. Why? Because Paul believed and fulfilled the Great Commission. Discipleship isn't just teaching doctrines in a classroom. It's life on life. New Christians need protecting and special care and instruction. Paul invested his time and his heart into Onesimus. He was willing to invest his treasure too. In verse 12 of Philemon, Paul says, I'm sending him back to you, Philemon. I'm sending my very heart. He discipled him so well, he showed up ready to serve. And it's obvious this wasn't a special case. Look at verses 19 and 20 of Philemon. Paul says, I'm writing this with my own hand. I'll repay it to say nothing of your owing 
me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. I mean, again, hashtag mom guilt to the nth degree there. He's laying it on, but he's laying it on accurately because he discipled Philemon. This is normal relationship. Here's the thing. You ready for this? I said on a phone call to a pastor friend earlier this week, the remarkable thing about Philemon is how unremarkable this kind of behavior should be in the local church. Which brings us to our final point. God's grace is clearly at work in a saint's suffering, a sinner's salvation, a disciple discipling, and it's at work in God's family. Here's where the rubber meets the road. Here's where the great physician has to do surgery on our hearts. Because if I were you seated in the pew this morning or watching online, I would say, hey, pastor, I'm with you. I'm confident that God can be with us in our suffering. Thanks for the reminder. Hey, pastor, God's grace and salvation, kind of elementary, but good point. I see it in the text. Good job, preacher. Oh, you don't need to say that. Uh, third point, uh, hey, um, I, I know we weren't saved to sit. We need to do the work of discipleship. I believe we've heard you say that 1,055 times, and uh, we want to get people on the pathway to discipleship. That's very nice, pastor, but here's kind of where it gets a little icky. What about when the person saved is somebody who personally, willfully, and with malice aforethought hurt you? Betrayed you? Stole from you? Lied about you? Whether the wound is still fresh or the scar is clearly visible, you were hurt and are still hurting. Paul acknowledged that Onesimus had done wrong, that he had fled, that he owed a debt, that he needed forgiveness, but he was transformed by Christ and he was coming back to Philemon as a brother in Christ and that would require Philemon to treat him differently with unmerited favor. He would have to think about him differently, talk about and to him differently, look at him differently. Evidence, verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Wow. Philemon may have received the grace of God for his salvation and his discipleship and maybe even seen it at work in his suffering, but now he was being called to demonstrate God's grace visibly as the family of God. Can you imagine that? After somebody hurt you so deeply? During the Korean War, a South Korean Christian, a civilian, was arrested by the communist and ordered shot. But when the young communist leader learned that the prisoner was in charge of an orphanage caring for small children, he decided to spare him, but to kill his son instead. So they shot the 19-year-old boy in front of his father. Later, of course, the fortunes of war turned, and the young communist leader was captured by the United Nations forces. He was tried and condemned to death. But before the sentence could be carried out, the Christian whose boy had been killed pleaded for the life of this killer. 
He declared that he was young. He really didn't know what he was doing. Give him to me, the Christian said. I'll train him. The United Nations granted the request, and that father took the murderer of his own son into his own home and cared for him. Today, that young communist is a Christian pastor because the gospel came to him on the way to somebody else. A healthy Christian is somebody who's committed to expressing that kind of unmerited favor when it costs us greatly. Such a tiny little slice of the New Testament. Such a powerful, explosive statement and realization. Grace changes everything. I'm going to ask the musicians to come to the instruments now and all the singers to come up and stand and be ready. Julia's going to play because I dare say in the room this morning, if I were sitting under this, you guys can come on up. If I was sitting under this, I believe the Lord would put his finger on something. Do I have a bad view of suffering? Have I been waiting for my suffering to be over and not waiting and looking for an opportunity for God to use me in the midst of my suffering? I don't know. Have I forgotten how good God's grace is in saving me? Have I gotten so bogged down by the cares of life that I'm a little, I've got some blurry vision, some nearsightedness? Maybe. Am I seeing God's grace at work in my own life and discipling others? Oh, it's time to get started, if not. Is there somebody that has been forgiven but I've put chains on that God didn't? Is there somebody I need to forgive? You see, God's people aren't strife stirrers. We are relationship repairers. Why? Because of the grace of God. Take a moment. Ask the great physician to do some surgery on your own heart today. Let's pray. Father, this letter to Philemon closes with very high expectations of Philemon. You have the same expectations on us. In fact, you've referred to us as ambassadors of Christ, ministers of reconciliation for your glory. Lord, this morning, as we go out this week and spend time in that daily discipleship guide that we'll study this week as a church family, some of us need to rethink the role of suffering in our lives. I'm praying that all of us will share the gospel with somebody who doesn't know Jesus this week because your grace is at work in salvation of others and that some of us will invest our time and resources into a discipleship opportunity. Lord, I'm praying still that some will repair broken relationships, even within the family of God, 
as your grace works in us and through us. In Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. Let's stand together and close in worship.